This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. tuned into the project up and podcast i'm your host nick larson welcome to the show for episode number 50 this episode of the podcast is brought to you by our friends at pine ridge grouse camp the finest rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience located in northern minnesota check them out at pineridgegrousecamp.com adventure awaits and by dog truck callers if you're in the market for a new tracking and training caller i suggest you check out the dogtra 2700 t and b this is a fully capable tracking and training caller it's got the patented 127 level stimulation rheostat dial from dogtra also includes a high performance pager aka vibrate and an integrated tracking beeper with three different modes for all of your hunting needs check out the dogtra 2700 t and b and more at dogtra.com and for the rest of our partners We've had a little bit of a shakeup. It's early in 2019. It's budget season. We've got some of our regular partners that are not with us right now, but we hope to have them back very soon. You will hear from them when we do. But until then, we've got some new partners that we're very excited about. The first of those being Gordy and Sons Outfitters. That's right. Gordy and Sons Outfitters, the finest store for hunting and fishing clothing, sporting art, fine jewelry, and travel gear. At Gordian Sons Outfitters, they have what you need to get you to where you are going. Check them out at GordyandSons.com. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Premium Performance Dog Food from Yukonuba is made with the highest levels of protein and fat to promote lean muscle and sustained energy for peak performance in your bird dog. 
Learn more about premium performance dog food from Yukonuba at yukonuba.com. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Caleb Bombstead. Caleb shared our previous post on Facebook. Thank you, Caleb. Project Up and T-shirt on the way to you very soon. You, the listener, could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you've got to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Subscribe to the podcast. Share the podcast post or send us some episode feedback or a suggestion. Love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, we're going to jump into the episode really quickly, but first I want to give a shout out to all of the Pheasants Forever chapters in the state of Iowa. They had me down there over the weekend. I did a little guest speaking engagement for them on Friday night of the Iowa Pheasants Forever State Convention. Had a social hour. I got to speak to them about some of the fun stuff we're doing at Project Upland. It was very cool. They took good care of me. I met some Pheasants Forever staff members, some Project Upland podcast listeners, and caught up with a bunch of loyal Pheasants Forever members. I had a great time. So thank you to them for having me down there. That was a lot of fun. And thanks for listening to the show. All right, let's do it. This week's guest is no stranger to the Project Upland podcast or website or magazine, for that matter, of dogsanddoubles.com. We've got Greg Elliott. He jumped on the show to talk about double guns, an article he wrote in the Project Upland magazine, Issue Zero, and all kinds of other fun stuff. And as always, when I have Greg Elliott on the show, I learned a whole bunch about double guns, and I hope you do too. So let's get into the show, and welcome to the Project Upland podcast of dogsanddoubles.com, Mr. Greg Elliott. Mr. Greg Elliott, we are live, and welcome back to the Project Upland Podcast. How are you this evening? I'm doing great. Doing great, Nick. How are you doing tonight? Doing really well. Thanks for asking, and thank you for taking the time to chat with myself and the Project Upland Podcast listeners. We're excited to have you on the show, back on the show. I, I think I was I was looking at my notes and some of our past conversations. I think it was almost about a year ago, the last time we chatted for a for a podcast episode and the uh I, I figured that was too long to go without without taking a deep dive on on dogs and doubles with Greg Elliott of dogsanddoubles.com. So we uh we figured we'd get you back on the show to chat a little bit. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. It's good to be back. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think I, I was driving up to Maine to geez, I was probably going to look at guns when we talked. <laughs> you and, don't uh, say. Yeah, that's usually what I'm doing. Going somewhere to look at guns, get stuff on dogsanddoubles.com and yeah, so it's good to be back. A lot's happened with Project Upland. I know I've been working with you guys. A lot of awesome stuff's been going on, and I've uh, been working with AJ and doing lots of cool things. And you guys are doing great, so I'm excited. Yeah, absolutely. We are. We are too. We're very excited. Uh, obviously, you and I are both kind of part of the Project Upland team in our different facets and various ways. And it's been fun with the launch of the magazine. You had an article in there, which we will touch on for sure. And we're looking forward to issue one coming up here pretty quick. I think your article was a series, right? Do you have another one coming up in the next episode? Do you know, or next issue? Well, so the next, the next episode, uh, I'm sorry, the next, not the next issue. So the next article I'm writing, I'm not quite sure where it's going to end up. It might be the summer issue. Um, we're, I'm not quite sure what your public, you know, if you do, you know, Four year anyway. Yeah, it's I have quarterly. to talk to the uh, talk to the uh, yeah quarterly. But um, the next one's going to be comparing um, Fox shotguns. So a brand new Fox shotgun, um, which is you know uh, Savage reintroduced the Fox shotgun to an original one. 
So I'm going to take a 20-gauge brand-new one, and we're going to take a 16-gauge original one, and we're going to compare them. And uh, a gunsmith friend of mine is going to – we're going to take them apart and take pictures of the differences and talk about them. And I shot last fall – I had that twenty, that new twenty gauge A grade fox. I had it hunting with me, and uh, done a lot of shooting with it. So I have a lot of experience with it. I'm just going to talk about what sets them apart, and you know which one I think is better. So it should be a great article, and I think it'll, you know, I think people who are uh, people are really interested in the results. Yeah, very I'll much just say so. That. I don't want to give too much away. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We don't need to spoil it here. I'm. I know. I'm looking forward to that article. I know. I, I had heard that you were going to be doing that, and that's kind of an. It's an interesting topic because I. I I'm certain the last time you were on here, we talked about fox shotguns, and and they are a popular topic for whatever reason. If it's because I don't know if it's because a bunch of people in Project Upland photos and videos carry fox shotguns, or we've talked about them so much here on the podcast. But it's you would be you. You might be surprised. Maybe you wouldn't be. But we've had so much feedback, and I've had so many people reach out to me and say, after some of the conversations that I've had with people like you and, and other guys about, you know, vintage guns, I've had so many people reach out to me and send me pictures of, of a, a Fox shotgun or really any old shotgun, but a lot of Foxes, they send a picture and say, I just picked this up today. You know, what do you think? And it's, it's cool to know that we're sharing some of that information and, and, you know, I'm learning right along there with, with the listeners and the people buying these guns. And you obviously have, you know, a whole lot more than I do, but it it is pretty neat to see people getting excited about vintage double guns. Yeah, well, especially, you know, the Fox, my first uh, shotgun was a 16-gauge Fox, and they're sort of, the Foxes are kind of the gateway drug of the vintage double market. That's how a lot of guys get into them. I had a 16-gauge Fox, and then I had a 12-gauge Sterlingworth, and that's sort of the, I shot a ton of pheasants with that gun, but the Sterlingworths especially, uh, you know, they're, uh, as far as vintage guns go, they're relatively inexpensive. Uh, there's a lot of them out there, um, and they're nice guns. You know, they're they're really good, solid, practical doubles. Uh, whether or not they're better than the new one, I don't know. We'll have to find out. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll leave it with that. That's a that's <laughs> a good. They're tease. very di- they're very different guns in a lot of ways too. Right, right. But. Yeah, and I I had seen some of that, and I've heard some of the conversation. I mean, certainly the new ones that Savage has put out is it's not exactly the not exactly the same as as the Fox of old. But we'll we'll let people read a little bit more about that in uh, an upcoming issue of the project up in magazine so we'll talk a lot more about guns we'll dive into some of this stuff greg but first i want to get down to some important business let's talk about your 2018 hunting season you're out east i know that i mean do you still have seasons open no so well uh i think i think new york state may still be open okay i don't i don't hunt over there so so everything i do is pretty much in uh new hampshire and maine and that ended at the end of December. Okay. So uh, December 31st. So I had, so there were tons of grouse in uh, the areas that I hunt in Maine and New Hampshire. There are a lot of woodcock. Uh, all that was really good. I got out, I did a little, some, some of the hunting I did was great, but I had a bad season. And it wasn't because my dogs were great. Uh, the birds were great. The places, everything was awesome. But two things happened. So first, I got shingles. Oof. So that dude, I've had messed up. <laughs> I've had them. Yeah, it completely. So I was sick, and the, and I was sick right at the time that I had taken off to hunt. Uh, oh, so man. I was actually, I was actually like up in a cabin up in Maine, you know, 
unintentionally quarantined because I was I go up there hunting with just me and my dogs. Uh, but I was so sick for like uh, a bunch of days that I couldn't get out. I could barely hunt. And then uh, at the end of October, the area where I was hunting and got slammed with snow uh. and pretty much shut it down. And it was, uh, it snowed and then it got a little uh, warm and then it got cold again. So it crusted over and it pretty much by the first of November, all the places I bird hunt were pretty much shut down and then deer season opened. So everything got messed up and, uh, so unfortunately I had a lousy season, but you know, I was talking to a, a buddy of mine that owns some sporting camps, uh, up in Northern Maine. And he was telling me that they were having 60 bird days. No way. Throughout and October. Is that grouse and woodcock combined? That's grouse. They were moving 60 grouse a day. Up wow. There. And I told this guy's a guide right. and he said, uh, he, that his biggest problem was he was having clients limit out before lunch and there's nothing else to do up there. <laughs> you know, so, like, like, what do you do all afternoon? Like here, you know, so he'd, he'd have to bring him back to the camps and guys would, you know, he'd have to come up with some kind of entertainment. Uh, but he told me he had a phenomenal year and I wasn't that far North where, where he was. Um, he was North of, uh, Mount Katahdin. Uh, I was, uh, in the Rangeley area, but the bird numbers are really good. So anyway, I hope, I hope things hold off. I think we, we could have a, a great 2019. I've already, looking forward to it already making plans for it so yeah absolutely me too that that those are definitely some crazy crazy grouse numbers i mean there's a lot of people probably listening to this show they're used to hunting maybe different bird species where a limit before the day's end is not unusual i mean that does happen but when we're talking rough grouse that is usually not something that is a limiting factor so for that to be the case yeah. that's, that's pretty yeah. good grouse hunting yeah, that's awesome. Especially, you know, most guys that, uh, it's not, they're not easy to hit. No. So, uh, to kill four birds in a day before lunch, you're going to move a lot of birds before lunch to do that. Yeah. Okay, so, 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 go ahead. And then, and where this guy hunts, I mean, it's, it's way up there and Northern Maine is, you know, it's, it's like the upper peninsula in Michigan. It's vast. It's a huge area. Uh, so there's a lot of ground up there. Yeah. But yeah. I've never had the to chance go. to hunt out there, but I've, I've heard, I've only heard good things and, and heard some similarities, you know, with sort of the Great Lakes region that I hunt, sort of the vast tracks of continuing forest. And it's certainly a kind of a bucket list hunt of mine. Now, the limit is four. So that in my head, most of the states over here limit is five. So that's, uh, you know, it's only one bird, but it still is a difference. But that fourth grouse is, is one less than five. But still, a limit on grouse anywhere is a good limit. Yeah. I mean, I've only shot a limit a couple times. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, I'm glad you're glad you're feeling better. I'm glad you kicked those shingles. I had those. Yeah. I, had, I had them when yeah. I was younger. I mean, I know they can be pretty painful. I've always heard kind of the the later the later in life you get them, the worse they are. But uh, that's not something you want to come down with. Yeah, yeah, mine weren't too bad. I didn't even. I, I I went to the doctors when I got back, and they told me I had shingles, and I sold them. I figured that's what I had. But <laughs> it was in the end. I I was mainly just really tired, but it you know. It just ruined everything. But right. anyway, there's, there's there's another season coming. So yeah, yep, absolutely. We uh we certainly have that to look forward to, and I know that I'm already imagining fondly the memories I will make in the 2019 season, and I've got some trip plans coming together because the people that I hunt with and myself have nothing better to do this time of year than to start planning for a September hunting trip. So that's always fun. Did you? travel anywhere to hunt this year or are you going to this upcoming year that you know of 
no. Well, I'll go up to I'll go up to Maine. Okay. I'll be up yeah. in northern New Hampshire, northern Maine. I'll go up there. It it all depends on how much I, you know, what my vacation schedule is looking like and how much time I can get. Um, as far as like bigger trips, I don't have anything planned. Nothing, nothing planned yet. But who knows what will happen? Gotcha, gotcha. So, no. It's always, I always, it's a tug of war between my wife. You know, I have to, I have to delicately negotiate. Oh yeah, taking off time, to, disappearing, and going hunting. Yep, absolutely. That uh, that has to be considered. You know, all all hunting trip plans have yeah. to be considered and and uh, planned out accordingly. I'm I'm well aware of that, especially now with a. Uh, He's almost 10 months old. I got a little guy in the mix, so that uh, that complicates things oh, even, wow. even more. But I'm very lucky to to have him in my life and very lucky to have an awesome wife that still allows me to do the things that I love to do. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, now I know you run English Pointers. I believe the last time we talked, you had two, but you were considering another one. Is that still the case? Yeah, we're still considering it. We'll okay. see. Maybe I should know. I, sh- I should know in another month or so if we're gonna if we're gonna go that way. A lot of it's. Uh, I would love to have another one. It's more just a matter of can I deal with taking care of them because then I'll have three of them. Yep. And uh, it's just a lot of dogs to take care of. You know. Well, you I know, run my, like I go ahead. Girl. I was gonna say I, I run a lot. Like I go out and run. Uh, five times a week, and I always run with my dogs. I have them on these leashes, and I have two dogs, and I run them with them. And I was just thinking, you know, if I had three of them, I don't know, that's that's a lot of stopping to clean stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yeah, that that's very true. You know, I was talking to a guy yesterday who is he's on the verge of uh, getting another bird dog in the mix, and he's maybe uh, you know maybe it's because it's January and it's the off season, but he's got puppy fever a little bit, and it's funny how we maybe justify these things in our own head. But I've heard people say, you know, once you have one bird dog, two is not that big of a difference, right? Because you're all set up for them. You got everything. And and he was trying to pull that and say, well, once you have two bird dogs, three is not that much more. And I think it's pretty easy to see how that could quickly spiral out of control. And I don't know if he was fully convinced that his wife was going to buy that one. Yeah, yeah. The, once you, the leap to threes, that's totally different because it's like where do you you need more you need a bigger vehicle to put them in that's the whole thing like yeah two's not bad but like three it's 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 hard to put three dogs like just in your car if you're going to go to the store like I throw them and I have an extended cab pickup and I can throw my dogs in the extended cab portion but three of them eh, it gets a little crowded back there so that's <laughs> all, all those kind of things come into play yeah so. yeah well we'll save that for another time the next time we have you on you'll have to update us on on the Greg Elliott uh, puppy decision but for now let's talk about double guns let's transition a little bit what's moving and shaking in the world of double guns Greg now you write on your website dogsanddoubles.com you pretty regularly put up uh, featured guns, things that you find, things that you think are interesting or good deals. So what's, what have you seen lately? What's, what's out there? So there's all sorts of stuff, all sorts of good guns out there. And I, like you said, I post them on my blog, dogsanddoubles.com. Right now, so I, there's a gun that I, that popped up. It's a, it's a 16 gauge Fox SPE skeet and upland game. So what all that means is, so this was a gun that in the 30s, like I think like 1932, Fox introduced this gun called the Fox Special, the SP. And uh, it's a unique, very, it doesn't really, it looks more like a Model 21 than a Fox. And then they introduced a version of this called the Skeet Nuplin Game. Basically, it's a really rare gun. I think they made maybe 50 of them somewhere around there. 
I th- I've seen a couple of them, but this one that I have on my blog now that just popped up is the nicest one I've ever seen. Uh, and, you know, it'd be a fantastic grouse gun. It's got like 26 inch barrels, a single trigger, you know, in its day, it was set up to, you know, to shoot skeet in Upland game. That's why it was called the skeet and Upland game gun. Uh, so that popped up. There's also, there's been a, I saw a Purdy barn wood that I put on my blog. Uh, there was a Parker pigeon gun. There's been a bunch of like Beretta BL three twenty gauge OUs, which are, you know, great guns. They're inexpensive and, uh, it's just a good way for guys to get into double guns um, and just all sorts of good stuff. There's good stuff coming up at auctions. There's a, a Dixon side-by-side and, a, you know, some nice double rifles. Uh, so there's always there's always a ton of stuff that I find that I come across that I see out there and put on the blog. And uh, overall, I think a lot of the, uh, depending on what you're looking at, like the British stuff, the prices are coming down a little on that stuff. Um, American stuff seems to be, like the smaller gauges seem to be holding their prices, uh, but they may be coming down a little too. It's a really good time to be looking at old guns because there's a, there's a lot of them out there. There's a lot of them coming out in the market. You know, there's a lot of guys that are older and they're looking to get out of the stuff and they're moving it. And it's a good chance for younger guys to get in and pick up stuff at a lower price than it was four or five years ago. Yeah, that's interesting. That's something that I've talked about with a few friends of mine and that, Maybe it's just wishful thinking, but it sounds like you are seeing some of that, and and it seems logical that they're, you know, the the baby boomer generation. There's a lot of them, and we all know how that is sort of playing into hunting demographics and hunter numbers going down because baby boomers are aging and maybe getting out of the sport, maybe getting out of guns, and you know we've talked about you know, the arsenals and, and some of the, some of the gun safes full of awesome guns that these guys may have and may one day get rid of. And so maybe it sounds like we're seeing a little bit of that. I mean, do you, you kind of see, see things going that way and possibly continuing? Oh yeah. Yeah. There's tons of, there are tons of huge collections of really good guns out there. And those guns are going to be coming on the market in the next five or six years. There's a lot of guys in their seventies who have Nice collections of really good stuff, and uh, that stuff's going to hit the market. And so I know that the stuff that I'm into, I see more of it. There's uh, And I just kind of – I think if, you, if you're starting to get into this, it's a great time because, like, uh, the entry-level stuff, the foxes and all that stuff, um, you're going to see more of that stuff out there. The prices are going to come down a little, and that's going to continue all the way up. It's already happening – you know, if you get into like the purdies and all that kind of stuff, the prices on those have already come down quite a bit. Um, and I don't see them, you know, there's just more of those guns that are co- they're going to come in the market. You know, there's, like I said, there's lots of big collections out there and they're just kind of hanging in the wings. And, you know, what happens is um, people have these collections and their families don't want them. Basically, they don't have anything to do with them. So what are you going to do? You got to sell them. Right. So. Yeah. So I'm, maybe I asked you this last time or it came up when we had you on last time, but how long, how long or when did you get interested in, in these vintage guns? How long have you been watching the market is, is really my question. So I've been market, watching it, you know, pretty closely for probably, probably like, geez, I don't want to say probably 15 years or okay. so. So I, but I, I, I've been into the, the old guns for a long time for, you know, 20 years, 25 years, but it wasn't until 
probably like the early 2000s that I really started to pay attention to the vintage market and like what was going on. And through that period, there was a huge run up in prices, you know, like in the 2000, from like 2000, to, I don't know, about 2008, 2009, maybe up to 2010, like the, the, um, the magazine, the double gun journal, I think that came out in the late nineties and, uh, that had a huge influence on sort of uh, a resurgence of interest in the old guns. Really? And then there was this thing called the Vintagers, this event that started happening. And that got people really excited about hammer guns. And uh, so there was a huge, like prices would go up, you know, 20% a year. They would, I mean, they did that throughout the 2000s. But the problem is that was, that was a lot of guys that were like back then who were in their 50s. Yep. You know, and those guys are in their 70s now. And... That demand is prices. So the, the thing that brings out more guns is high prices, you know. And so it kept bringing out more and more guns, and all those guns went into collections. Um, but now it's just they're just the guns have to be. They're going to be sold because, like I said, there's there's a lot of people out there. Their their families don't want them. So yeah, that was that was going to be kind of my next question in that you know, I've only been paying attention to the vintage gun market for three, maybe four years. So I'm, I'm fairly new to it. And I had sort of caught wind of, you know, I can see the prices in, uh, on some of the American guns and I have a little bit of an understanding of that today, but I had, you know, I've heard of guys buying for guns, but guys buying guns for a lot less and sort of heard of that big price run up. So I was curious about that. And it sounds like, sounds like you have seen that, but you know, you've alluded to like, a, a good market, you know, supply and demand are going to have a relationship where when the supply gets too high, the demand's going to go down, the price is going to go down. I mean, that's, that stuff you can kind of see play out over time. Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to, it's going to, it's going to happen. And you're seeing it across all sorts of uh, collectibles, the whole, like all the collectible markers are getting hit by this. Um, like, uh, so antique furniture, that stuff used, you know, that stuff's down 40 to 50% from where it was five years ago, six years ago. Um, but like Rolex watches are really hot, you know, that's become, and they're up, you know, I don't know, they're up several hundred percent from where they were 10 years ago. Huh. So there's, you know, there's, there's changing demands and there's changing tastes and different stuff coming on the market. So. Well, I knew you like guns, Greg, but do you have a house full of antique furniture? No, no, no. But th I run into all this stuff. This is all stuff. It's all the same world, you know. Like you hang out around. Uh, if you hang out at auctions, sure. You know, you run into people that are interested in all this stuff. And as I look around online at guns, I come across other stuff. And I like some antique furniture. It's just what I'm the exact reason why the market's crashing on it because I look at it and I go, "That's really cool." But what do, am I going to put it in my house? I don't have any room for this stuff. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly why, you know, these, and I, and that some of the guys I know that are older that are into guns, they also collect the antique furniture and, you know, these guys will have these desks that they paid, I don't know, $5,000 for in the early 2000s. And they go to an auctioneer and the auctioneer will be like, well, you're lucky to get a grand for it now. And, uh, that's just the thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, as I've branched out a little bit and I've looked at some of the other, more generalized auction sites as opposed to your guns international and your gun broker where they're you know obviously gun focused i've looked at some of the auction sites i you tend to see more of those 
collectible stuff and I've, I've looked at some more general auction listings and, and have seen some of that stuff. So I can see where you're, you could get a sense of that if you're paying attention to, to the guns enough. Yeah. And people who collect stuff, I find have a collecting bug in them. Yeah. And uh, so they tend to collect other things too. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, you know, we did talk about the sites uh, last time about gun broker and guns international. And, you know, when you're, you kind of just have a knack, you're just, you're just scanning those things early and often all the time. Are those kind of, for people that are picking this up, maybe they listened to us last time, maybe they didn't, maybe they're interested in vintage guns. Are those kind of still your, are those two of your go-to places for dipping your toe in the water, getting to know the market anywhere else that you suggest people go to, to look at stuff other than, you know, some of the stuff you feature at dogsanddoubles.com? No. So I would I watch guns international, watch gun broker. There's a site called, it used to be called guns America. I don't know. If I it's think still it is guns. still that. Yeah. Yeah. Guns America. That's another site to watch. It's not as good as, uh, you don't see as much good vintage stuff as you do on guns, uh, Gun Broker or Guns International, but that's another site to check out. You know, definitely watch my blog, dogsanddoubles.com. The other thing you can do is, um, so those are Guns America and Guns International. Those are uh, what I call retail sites. You know, people post stuff for sale, you know, Um, whereas Gun Broker is an auction site. You know, people post stuff uh, and they put it up, list it for auctions, you know, eBay style. Um, There's a... a site called ProxyBid, P-R-O-X-I-B-I-D.com. That is a site which is listings of auctions that are going on all over the country. And that's a good site to watch, too. You can go in, so you can go in there and you can search for, like you can enter a search for Fox Shotguns, and it'll show you um, a listing of all the various auctions throughout the U.S. that are having, that have Fox Shotguns coming up for sale. I mean, obviously, but... Uh, not every auction company is there, but Proxy Big's pretty big. It's pretty big, and they're the most of the major auction houses in the country are listed there. So that's another good place to look for guns. You go on there and you know type in you know Fox shotgun, type in side by side, and just see what you can get. And the secret to a lot of these, like especially like Gun Broker, is just running a lot of searches, running a lot of different searches. You know, it's like using eBay or anything like that. You got to use, uh, you just have to keep looking and then you can set up searches that notify you of when they find stuff. And that's a lot of what I have. I've used these things so many times that I have searches already programmed into the systems. And when certain things come up, I get an email, you know? So that's how I'm able to track stuff down. But I, you know, I still miss stuff. I, if I have buddies that send me emails and they'll say, Hey, look what I bought off of, you know, gun broker. And I'll be like, how did you find that thing? You know, I didn't see that thing. Why didn't you tell me? Because like, if I told you, you would have bid on it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But and, and the other thing, too, that's amazing. So when I first got into this stuff, you used to be able to – when I first got into this stuff, you know, it was right when the Internet was really just starting to take over. But there were still uh, – there was still a newspaper that came out every – I think it came out every two weeks, and it had all these auctions in it. And all the country, all the major auctions in the country would list would send a listing into this this newspaper, and you would go through the listings and you would look for guns, and when you found found stuff, you pick up the phone and you call them, and that's how you used to find stuff at auctions. Nowadays, and, and and you were able to find like 
great stuff that no one else saw because it was so difficult to track stuff down. But you'd have to go to the auction house and, you know, it was was very labor-intensive to find stuff. But you could find great deals. Nowadays, you find these auctions that are happening at these out-of-the-way places, and you think no one else is going to discover it, and everyone finds it. Yeah. So, <laughs> the, uh, so the great thing about the internet is that there's there's just there's so many guns you can see, and there's so much stuff you can learn. And the problem is, is that everybody's doing it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yep. You know. The competition is high because you're you're competing with everybody else that is searching for Fox shotguns or Parker shotguns. Yeah, and there's a lot of guys out there doing it. So uh, I was just talking with a buddy uh, today about something that he saw, and you know, we were just commenting on the fact that there was just it, it just he thought he was going to steal it, and then we talked about it, and he's like, "Yeah, there's I'm sure other I'm sure plenty of other people have seen it." So, but anyway, that's just how it goes these days. Right, so. right, yeah, I know, and I know from talking to you. You have mentioned, you know, if you see something that you like and they've got a phone number there, pick up the phone and call because even if, even if you think, wow, there's a million people calling and asking about this, I mean, you never know. And I'm sure you have examples where you did make the call and you did snag a good deal just because you picked up the phone. Yeah, absolutely. Pick up the phone immediately. Um, like, especially if you, any listing you see anywhere, the best thing to do is to pick up the phone right away and call them. If you try to send an email, you know, you could, who knows when they'll get the email. Right. And you know who, uh, a place that is notorious for the, having this issue is Cabela's. If you see anything online at Cabela's, the best thing to do is pick up the phone and call them right away. If you send them an email, I mean, I've, it can take them days to get back to you. And I've told, I've missed stuff because of that. And I know that uh, I've also, you know, got stuff because instantly I, I picked up the phone and, uh, you know, I, I'll have them tell me, you know, we just listed that like 20 minutes ago. How did you? Where did you see it? I'll be like, oh, you know, I, I check quite a bit. So. <laughs> but that's what you have to do. So, Awesome. Well, that's some good advice for people that are interested in double guns. I think we've covered a little bit of that before, but it never hurts to go over it again. I know I'm always kind of always looking. I don't know if I'm near pulling the trigger. I was chatting with you a couple of weeks ago about a couple of guns that I was looking at and, and I just, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm right there, but I'm, you I'm, didn't, you didn't buy that one that we, you were talking about. No, I haven't bought it. You know, to, check to be, and see if it's still online. you should look because actually I did call the guy and he never got back to me. And so, you know, if I really wanted it, I should just call him back and keep pinging him on the phone, but he hasn't still got there. Back to me, so yeah, so. yeah, you better go get this. I might get it. It's, it's really nice. <laughs> well, if it wound up in your hands, I think I would, I would, I'd be at peace with that, knowing that maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe when you head this way, we could meet up for a grouse hunt or something. That's very nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we we touched on an article earlier, and so you did write an article for the Project Upland magazine. I think we had it on the website too, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had it on the website too. It's called Avoiding Double Trouble. We're going to go over that a little bit, but what else, what else, you know, you, you obviously you're writing some more stuff for the magazine, anything else you've been working on writing wise, publishing out there for people to read? Well, so, uh, let's see, there was a, I hadn't, the last thing I had come out was in the January, February issue of shooting sportsman magazine. Ah. And that was, uh, an article about the new Beretta SL three, uh, over and under. And that was, uh, AJ from project Upland. Uh, we both were in Italy to uh, to tour the factory and find out about that gun, 
and uh, I don't know, he, he shot some video for it. But anyway, that, I had that piece, and then I have some other stuff coming up. I have, you know, I have a piece about Fabry shotguns and um, some other stuff. Some there'll be some stuff going on in Covey Rise, but uh, the writing stuff has been going really well. Um, you know, there's going to be more stuff with the Project Upland. Uh, I actually have to talk to uh, Matt tomorrow. There'll be an article about. Uh, uh, more gun stuff will continue the, you know, this avoiding double trouble. We'll, we will continue this sort of information about how to buy stuff in previous, in uh, upcoming issues. It won't be, you know, every one, every issue, but, uh, but they'll be coming. So there'll be lots of great, great stuff for guys to read and get informed about. Yeah. Good deal. Oh, and that reminds me that I was going to ask you about this earlier, but I forgot you on docsandoubles.com recently, you posted an article, no, a video by the this gun shop over in England, and I actually watched a bunch. Right. of I watched a bunch of videos. Do you know the guy in that video? I don't know him. What I mean, I know him online. I've chatted with him and talked to him. Okay. Uh, but I don't know him any more than that. Okay. They, but, uh, I mean, they do some cool yeah, videos so what, actually. Well, yeah, and it, I, it's just one guy. You know, the the other video, the earlier videos. You know, he was. Uh, you could tell he was taking his phone and just like shooting himself you yep. know like everybody sort of gets started with this but his production value you know he's bought better equipment and he looks like he has an editor and stuff now but yeah that prop that that article you're talking the the video you're talking about is the problem with side-by-side shotguns yep and uh yeah i mean he, he makes a lot of great points and he, he talks about a lot of things that i see going on out there too um so yeah i mean people should check out my blog and you can you can find the article and uh, find the video and see what you think yeah yeah it, you know it was it's a great video and it's a great it's a great video title i mean it's gonna grab attention and you know when you shared it i think you know there were some comments on it and people watched it and again he's pointing out pointing out valid things but it as somebody that recently became interested in side-by-sides and got all excited about it, it was kind of sad to hear that. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm not so naive to realize that there's not a whole lot of new side-by-sides coming out. I mean, there are, but they're definitely not at the forefront of the marketplace. And, you know, for a lot of reasons that he points out, but, uh, it kind of make me want made me want to reach out to that guy and maybe get him on the podcast because he did have a bunch of other yeah, you cool should, videos. Yeah, you should reach out to him. Yeah, yeah, and I think so. And I think one thing he's overlooking is that uh, what's good is people are getting into the double barrel shotguns, you know. Yeah, yeah. And if you first get into it out on the over and unders, I'm fine with that because I think eventually you'll be interested, or some of those guys are going to be interested in side by sides. Um, it's hard to argue, like, if you shoot a lot of sporting clays, if you do a lot of, you know, that type of shooting, and over-under shotgun's hard to beat. You know, that's, you know, people shoot them really well, uh, and they're not that expensive compared to the side-by-side stuff. But, you know, if you want to get into the game bird hunting and all that kind of stuff, I think that side-by-sides are, you know, just as good, if not better. And, you know, these people are getting interested and excited about it. And the Project Upland crowd, the guys are into the side-by-side stuff, you know. So I think he should know a little bit, at least in the U.S., there's there's definitely people who are interested in them and like them. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, that's that's exactly the route that I took. I mean, I shot pumps and the semi-auto for quite a while, and then eventually the over-under caught my eye, and I really wanted an over-under, and I got one, and I only had that over-under for maybe two years. And then I, then I was all about the side-by-sides. And, I, and prior to that, I really – 
I didn't really care for side by sides or know anything about them. And, you know, all of a sudden, I think it was, you know, some of my friends had them and I just, I flipped just like that. So there's no reason that other people couldn't either. Yeah, that's what happened to me too. I mean, that's what, that's what happens everywhere. The good thing is that people are interested in shooting and interested in, in hunting. And, you know, there's always going to be people who don't come over, but like if you, you know, maybe four out of 10 will be interested in side by side. So that's good. There's, you know, and there are some nice new ones out there that are affordable, like some of the Dickinsons and there's some other companies that make them that are good, decent, uh, usable, modern side-by-sides. You can put steel through them. They have uh, good dimensions on the stock. You know, they're reliable. So the biggest that's the biggest advantage the OUs have is that you can buy a, you can buy a good quality OU for, you know, 1500 bucks. Yep. So, Have you had your hands on an... I don't know if it's fair or if it's F-A-I-R, a side, kind of their entry-level side-by-side. I haven't had a, my hands on their side-by-sides, but I've seen their OUs. I've seen a lot of their OUs. Okay. So FAIR is an acronym for Fabriki, Army, Isadora, Rosini. And uh, they came out with – they had side-by-sides that they uh, a company imported from like 1999 to maybe 2002. Uh, and they're nice. They were nice guns, and I've seen pictures of those new, um, their new side by side. Yep. And they look decent. You know, they're they're a very basic gun. Uh, you know, I think the price point's nice. I think they're like two thousand bucks. Was that right? Or yeah, you can find them for the less. Lot. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's it's a great little gun. It's it's new. You know, you don't have the you know the problem with the old stuff is it's old. It's had a lot of time for people to mess with it. Yep. So the new stuff, you don't have those issues, and uh, yeah, I think those are. And it's they're a great way to get into it, and it's uh, it's good that you see the makers actually, you know, they're building them and they're selling them to the U.S. So that's why, you know, you talk this guy that had this, he made it sound like no one wanted side by sides, and I think the market itself is showing that that's not true. Yeah, you know, people do want them. Yeah, uh, there's companies making them. So yeah, definitely. And one thing you mentioned that I think is important is if you step into the world of vintage guns, and all of a sudden. You know, Damascus barrels or proof numbers, two and a half inch chambers. If all that stuff is too much for you, there are still, you know, good quality new guns that you can buy. And I'll point the finger at the Dickinson estate because I just sold one of those. Mine was actually, it was a Webley Scott. It's the exact same gun, but it was, it was, uh, that gun is actually from, from my knowledge has been rebranded a couple times. It is currently made as the Dickinson estate, but that is a really, I think it's a really, really nice Turkish made side by side for what it is. I mean, when I box that thing up to sell it, I, I had a really hard time boxing that up and letting it go. I mean, it's a nice quality built little side by side. Yeah. Yeah. Those are great little guns, you know, and they're, 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 you know, reliable, they're well-made, uh, they're nice looking and it's really, they're, it's a really hard gun. It's hard to find, I guess I could say you could spend a lot more money and not get a better gun. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Yep. Yeah. Well, cool. So I'm going to circle back here, this avoiding double trouble. This was your article and you kind of, it, it basically had three, three sort of main sections and it was talking about side-by-side shotgun. So let's just kind of walk through the three sections and we'll see, we'll see where we get with that. So the first section was sort of what makes this, what makes them the same. And you were kind of setting the stage for side-by-side shotguns. Yeah. So basically, you know, uh, the elements that all these, uh, that all double barrel shotguns have in common, you know, they all have actions and the actions that the metal section in the middle where, uh, the barrels attached to and 
sort of the lock work, which makes the guns fire. That's the area where that's uh, sort of housed. They all have locks. That's what uh, the hammer is that, that springs forward to hit the firing pin to fire the shell. They all have uh, springs on the lock. So there's some type of lock work, lock work on all the guns. Um, you know, obviously they are hollow bar- barrels. They all have chambers. Uh, they either have a s- single trigger or a double trigger, and they all have a stock in foreign. So whether you're talking about, you know, side-by-side or OU, a Dickinson or a Purdy, uh, they all have those elements. Um, some of the guns are, some guns are box locks, some guns, some guns are side locks, but they still will have all those basic elements. Right. And that kind of leads into the second part, and that's sort of what sets them apart. And you touched on one of the main differences, especially when you get into side-by-sides, you're talking box locks and side locks. And I think that's an interesting one because that is kind of a clear distinction between there's a real line i think in the marketplace you know when you look at side locks and you look at box locks so maybe and actually this is a fun fact i just learned this last week somebody told me i you know i look at enough online gun listings and i kept seeing this this abbreviation b l n e and i had no idea what it meant so i finally i sent somebody a text i said dumb question what does b l n e mean well of course it means box lock non ejector or you might see right. uh, you might see b l e meaning box lock ejector so that uh, that was yeah. that was new information to me i'm sure you learned that a long time ago greg yeah well I, yeah probably i'm i'm the way I learned all this stuff was uh, reading Michael McIntosh's books, and that's one of the things he teaches. And there's there's side lock ejectors, S L E, side lock non ejectors, S L N E, and then there's also these guns that are trigger plate actions. We're kind of in between, like the Dickinson. I'm sorry, the Dixons. Dixon round actions are trigger plates, but they're kind of a hybrid. They look like box locks, but they're they're more like side locks. They're kind of in between, but that's you know that's sort of the exception to the rule. Most of the stuff you're going to see out there is a box lock or a side lock. Right. So circling back on the box lock and side lock, if you look at enough of them, the obvious difference is that just from a visual perspective, the box lock tends to be a smaller a smaller piece of metal in the middle of the gun between the stock and the end, and the side lock tends to have these large side plates and the metal area the action is much bigger but what what actually mechanically is going on there that lends itself to those differences so a box lock got its name because there's a box there's that small in the action kind of looks like a rectangle okay and the locks the stuff that makes the gun fire are mounted inside the box so the box has locks that's how it got its name. Yeah. And it initially was a way to, it was actually sort of a, it was, it was kind of an insult um, because back in, I, Wesley Richards invented the box lock, I don't know, like 1870, somewhere around there. And it was, you know, it was British and it was, uh, it was part of the British shooting scene and the British shooting scene was and still is, uh, you know, very sort of snobby class oriented. And they called them these guns box locks as a way to insult them and set them apart from the side locks, which tended to be more expensive, and that sort of it was more upper class. So it's kind of where it's got its name. But today, but today we just you know we call them box locks. Um, obviously, we don't we don't you know we're not out to insult anybody. But that's where it came from initially. And once you look at them, you see right away there's a it, there's a that there that the elements you know it has a box and the lock work is mounted 
inside the box. Inside locks, you have the locks are mounted on the sides of the action. And like you said, they, they extend back. Um, so it's a different way of setting up that lock work. And a side lock, um, side locks tend to cost more money. They definitely take more time to build. They're, uh, there's a lot more parts involved. There's a lot more hand fitting that goes into making those guns. And some people think they're better. And I think it's open to debate whether or not they're better, but they definitely tend to cost a lot more. And like all your best, all your most famous gun makers, your Purdy's, your Holland's, your Boss, those are all side locks. Yeah, they've got those big, you know, they've got a lot more room for that deep relief scroll hand engraving. So they yeah, kind of yeah. lend themselves to all of that stuff too. Yeah, for the most part. There are box locks with side plates that look like side locks yep. kind of in between yep. uh, like francots or a lot of francots are like that you see it on some british stuff um but for the most part uh, when you see those big plates that's a side lock there so elsie smith's uh that's the only true american side lock uh, so they're a side lock they're not super expensive um lefevers are kind of side locks but they're not true side locks that's you know that's those are the, some basically the key things that set those things apart. Right. Yeah. And so that's that's kind of a that's kind of a main main difference maker. Again, like I said, if you if you look at that stuff quite a bit, you'll you'll very clearly start to recognize and see the differences there. Uh, we talked about the ejectors, non ejectors, or extractors. Maybe touch on those real quick. So uh, let's see. They all have extractors. So what extractors do is ex- Extractors, uh, when you put the when you put the shells into the chamber of the gun and uh, you open it, extractors are the things that are lifting the shells up from the chambers so that you can take the shells out. So it's a little piece of metal, and or either two pieces of metal if it's an OU, um, and they just basically raise the shell up from the chamber so that you can extract it. They extract the sh- shells from the chamber. Now ejectors. What they do is they're, they're a mechanism that works along with extractors to kick the shells out of the chambers automatically, kick the fired shell out of the chamber. So you shoot the gun. So say you have an over and under, and you fire it, and you fire the bottom barrel, and you open the gun. An extractor is just going to lift that shell up, and you're going to pull it out, and you're going to put it in your pocket. An ejector, you're going to open that gun, and it's going to pop, and it's going to kick that shell free of the chamber. So that's an ejector. It's ejecting the shell from the chamber, you know, and typically non-ejector guns uh, cost less than guns with ejectors. The ejectors are mounted and most of the time mounted in the forend. You know, it's just, it's just another thing, another complexity. Right. So, you know, they typically cost more, but for most of the hunting that like most of the hunting I do, you don't need ejectors. You know, there's, you can just, you can just lift the shells out of the chamber after you fire them and put them in your pocket. They're really made for, you know, like hunting in England. People would, uh, when you're hunt- driven shooting, if you could, basically you could fire, you could get off more shots in a minute if the shells were ejecting themselves automatically. Uh, it was, you know, that's what they came about as. Uh, but for most of the people I know, they're kind of a nice to have, but they're not an, uh, they're not a have to have. Right. Yeah. They tend to not be, they seem to tend to not be kind of a deal breaker either way, but again, yeah, they have, 
different sort of uses that they were developed from. And yeah, if you're standing at a post and shooting and you're trying to shoot a bunch of birds and you're you're reloading a lot, certainly ejectors are going to come in handy if you're shooting sporting clays or skeet, that kind of thing. But when you're in the field, I think a lot of people find, and I know that I actually like it, The I like the extractors because I want to collect all my shells and put them in my vest. I don't want to leave them lying on the ground. So it's just a, it's a lot easier to be able to just pull them out and slip them into my vest as opposed to have to go digging around through the brush trying to find a uh, you know, a spent shell after, after the bird goes. And there's always that one time where you think to yourself, boy, I wish I could have had that reloaded faster, but that's just part of the game really. Yeah. It doesn't, I don't really find a lot of instances where it's, I consider it to be an advantage. I, it's kind of cool to have them pop out. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. It's also another thing that can go wrong, especially like on, excuse me, like on Parker's Parker ejectors are really uh, complex and they, they, it's easy for them to go bad. Uh, so if you get a gun without it, that's just one less thing that can break. Right. So. Yeah. That's kind of how I've always looked at it from, especially from the vintage gun, you know, aspect, you, you tend to see the ejector guns are a little bit more rare They're They come with a little bit higher price tag and the non ejector ones, it's kind of a nice, it's kind of a nice thing to have. It can save you some dollars and you're really not missing out on anything. And then you've got that one less piece to break or malfunction. Yeah. And especially in American guns, like a lot of the foxes, you see a lot of the parkers, you can find them. It's pretty easy to find ones without ejectors. And uh, they definitely cost less. The ones with ejectors always command a premium. Uh, and if you're a, you know, a bird hunter, unless you're, and unless you're shooting doves down in Bolivia or something, for the most part, you don't need them. Right. So. Right. So the last section on the article, which we'll, we'll take a look at, this is uh this is good advice. We've kind of talked about some of this, but again, it's sort of the one, two and three of if you're looking at vintage guns or, I mean, any used gun really would apply to this, but certainly the article is kind of written about vintage guns, but rule number one, look for original condition. Yeah, that's the most important thing. So, you know, original condition, meaning the finishes on the gun should be uh, the ones that were there when the gun left the factory. So the blooming on the barrels, uh, the oil finish on the stock, that's an important thing to look for. Um, color case hardening, all those things, you want them to be uh, as original as possible. And you want them to be, so the other thing is you want as much of those finishes to be present as possible too. Does that, does that make sense? Like you want like the blue finish on the barrels, you want as much of that still there as you can afford basically, you know? Yeah. Yep. That makes sense. And that's one thing that I want to ask you about because now you have to, if you look at enough, you'll eventually come across a gun that it'll have full case colors. It'll look like the barrels are perfect and the wood looks amazing. And it will hopefully say fully restored. And that's telling you that the gun has been restored. It's been brought back to uh, near original condition. Sometimes they don't always say that. And I think this is kind of some of the gray area of looking at vintage guns. And I, I know I've sent you a few guns and, and oftentimes you suspect that the barrels may have been re-blued or re-blacked. So tell me a little bit about that. What are you looking at? How do you see that? And what does that ultimately mean if you're looking at that gun? So uh, when a set of barrels is made, initially they're sort of a silver color. And what they do is they blue them or black them, depending. Like in the UK, they call the, they call the process blacking a barrel. 
In the U.S., they call it bluing. So they put a finish on them, like a blue or like a, like a dark blue kind of black finish on the barrels. And that finish is there to protect the barrels from corrosion. From It's supposed to, you know, help resist rust and stuff like that. And over time, like if you use the gun and shoot it, your hands can rub that finish away. They can rub the bluing or blacking off of the barrels. Okay? Mm-hmm. And... What's really common is someone will say, well, you know, I want, I want to restore that finish. I want, I want it to put it back. So they'll have someone re-black or re-blue the barrels. The problem is that when they do that, whenever you, one of the things they do when they uh, re-blue the barrels is they, they, uh, they have to get that original finish off. So they tend to, they will take like, um, I think they take like a, like a sandpaper and they'll, they'll, uh, sand the finish off the barrels, um, and then they'll re-blue them. But basically, they'll remove some of the metal work on it. And uh, with barrels, you want them to always be as thick and sound as possible. So whenever you remove anything, it always gets me a little worried. And then just as uh, the other thing, too, is uh, a lot of the finish, especially when you're dealing with these old guns, the finishes that you see today don't always look like the finishes that you see that were originally on the guns, you know? So it changes the look of the gun a little. Um, and if you have a gun that has, you know, it's a hundred year old gun and it has barrels that look like they're brand new, it just kind of looks weird, you know? Yeah. Um, doesn't look right. So those things uh, tend to, uh, they, they will definitely impact the value of the gun. Now, is that, it does, it does, may not affect the shootability of it, the usability of it, you know, it's, but it will definitely, um, affect how much you pay for it. And that's why you have to be, when you're, when you're shopping for these things, you have to be aware of that stuff because it's in the seller's best interest to, you know, not tell you because they can charge you more money. So that's why you want to learn. One of the things that, you know, one of the things you can tell, one of the ways you can tell is just, if you look at the gun and the rest of the guns really beat up and it's got barrels that look like they're brand new, the barrels have probably been redone. You know, the other thing is that, the engraving on the barrels, like, you know, a lot of times it'll say, you know, say like A.H. Fox and they'll have Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. There'll be some sort of um, engraving on there that tells what the gun, the brand of the gun and where it was made. When they re-blue the guns, if it's not done really well, they will sometimes polish over that and it won't, it'll kind of look like it's out of focus. Sure. It won't look crisp and sharp. Um, the other thing you'll see is uh, sometimes people re-blue barrels because they had some rust on them or... They, you know, some type of corrosion on them, and when they re-blue them, you can look at the barrels, and if they haven't done really well, you can see that there's pitting that has bluing in it. So if pitting, and that, and that wasn't there originally, they wouldn't, they didn't blue, when they, when they uh, originally blew the barrels, they would have made sure the surfaces were, uh, were consistent. There wasn't, you know, they were smooth, they were glass-like. So if you see pits that have bluing in them, that means someone re-blued it. You know, for whatever reason, they didn't do the greatest job. And again, that's, it's not always a bad thing, but it's, it's just one of the things you want to be aware of when you're buying, because the, the horrible thing that happens is you don't know these things and you pay, you know, $3,000 for a gun. And then one day you decide you want to trade up, you go to a dealer and you hand him the gun and he goes, well, the barrels are reblued. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. No one told me that. And now you find out your 3000 guns, $3,000 a gun, dollar gun is worth 1500 bucks. So that's why, you know, it pays that you want to just know what's going on, uh, that you pay the appropriate prices. Right. Yeah. That's, that's really good insight. And that is, 
that's kind of the idea here is just trying to know as much as possible. And, and we should probably say, you know, we, I know we talked about this before, but anytime you're buying a gun, a vintage gun from online or, or anywhere, really, you want to have a trusted gunsmith that you know knows his stuff, that you can have him inspect this gun. Most sellers will allow an inspection period, and if they don't, that's kind of another signal that you've talked about. It's kind of like stay away, steer clear. But if they allow that inspection period, you want to have your trusted gunsmith take a look at it just so he can tell you what that gun is and specifically, you know, whether it's good, bad, or neutral, he can tell you exactly what's happened there and if anything's been worked on and that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. That's crucial. I mean, you absolutely, you have to get somebody to review the, inspect the guns. You know, I've been doing this for a long time and a friend of mine inspects stuff for me and he still finds stuff that I, that I didn't see. So, uh, it's absolutely, you know, most of the guys, most gunsmiths will charge you a little bit to do it. Um, if you can go watch them do it, you can learn what they're pointing out and learn uh, what the problems were. That's what I try to do, and that's how I've learned about this stuff. You know, cool. The best way to do it is to buy something, pay too much for something, and then go to sell it. And uh, then you learn a lesson, right? Lose money. <laughs> and learn a lesson that you won't forget. So yeah, I believe that. So we did talk a lot about barrels on on rule number one, but that's rule number two. Rule number two is check the barrels. And I've heard you say, I've heard you use the phrase when you're buying these old guns, you're essentially, you want to buy the barrels. Talk about what that means. So the barrels uh, themselves are the most important part of the gun. Uh, and the condition of them is, is crucial because they're, uh, if the barrels are bad, replacing them is uh, usually not an option. You know, it's either, if, it's an, if, you're, if you're talking about an old Parker or something like that, uh, there's no place to get new barrels. And if you're talking about a new, you know, uh, something where you can get new barrels, the cost of the barrels is going to be crazy. So that's why inspecting the barrels, looking for pitting, looking for damage, looking for bulges and dents, all those things is crucial because you have to make sure the barrels are sound. You know, from a safety point of view, you want to make sure you're going to be able to shoot them. And then also just from uh, a shootable point of view, you want to make sure that uh, the barrels have the proper length chambers in them and all those types of things. Uh, so again, that's why this relates back to the original condition. If you see original condition on the barrels, you can have a better sense of whether or not anybody's messed with them. If anyone's, um, one of the things people will do is uh, barrels on the inside will develop rust and uh, people will uh, hone that out somehow. And that can make the barrels, uh, the walls of the barrels can get thin. Shotgun barrels with thin uh, walls can damage easier. And so, you know, it's easy to damage, and it's easy to dent a barrel on a shotgun. You can, you know, knock it against a tree too hard and you can dent them. Um, and if the barrel walls are too thin and you dent them, uh, then you can't do anything. You can't repair it. So the barrels are scrap. So then the gun's pretty much scrap. So this, you know, brings you back. You always want to, the more you, attention you pay to the barrels, the more attention you pay to the wall thicknesses, to the bore sizes and all those things to give you a better sense of um, the overall condition of the barrels, uh, how much life they've had, how much life is left in them, and sort of what's happened to them in the course of their life. So, and this goes back to why you need a gunsmith to look at them, because they're specialized tools to measure all these things. And until you have those and know how to use them, you really need a third party to check stuff out for you. 
Yeah, for sure. Great example of that. A, a guy, he's a listener of the podcast. He, I don't know if it was his first double gun. I think it was. Uh, he got interested in vintage guns. He went out, he bought a Sterling Worth, and he took your advice, Greg's, the stuff that we've talked about on here. He brought it right. to a gunsmith that he trusted, and the gunsmith found a slight bulge in the barrel that was like almost almost yeah. not even visible, but he pointed it out and, and just kind of gave him his professional opinion said he wouldn't keep the gun and and uh the listener brought it back and and moved on and so that's kind of that sort of practice you know working working exactly as the way that it should yeah yeah and like bulges are very bulges in uh lifted dents are really common and unless you have a, a practiced eye you won't see them um and they're not always a bulge isn't always uh it isn't doesn't always signal the death of a barrel or the death of a set of, you know, but you want to know it's there. Yeah. Because if you're buying a gun, uh, it's a point to be negotiated against with a seller or to be discussed. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So you also mentioned uh, a term that gets thrown around is minimum wall thickness. And this is one of the, it's not one of the most uh, clear things that's going to be pointed out in the gun listings, the guys that are, that do really good gun listings and they give you all the details, the, the chokes and the weight and everything. They're usually more of a dealer not sort of a guy just selling a one-off gun, but they'll tell you the minimum wall thickness. So I've started to pay attention to that a little bit. And I've heard people say, give kind of a number, sort of their, their threshold on how thin is too thin. And I've asked a few people about this. Do you have a, do you have a threshold? Do you have a rule about minimum wall thickness? Yes and no. And, the, and so I have, so it all depends on where you're talking about in the barrels. Okay. So if you have, so when, uh, when you, when you fire a shotgun, the pressure inside the barrels is at the maximum right after you fire the gun. So like right at the, right at the point at the edge of the shell where it goes into the chamber, it goes into the forcing cone, that's where the pressures are the greatest. And then as everything moves down the shell over time, the pressure dissipates, okay? Down the barrel, so, yes, I follow you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously this happens really fast, but your, your highest pressure point is right at the beginning and then at the end, the pressure's at the end. So you wanna have a lot of thickness by the forcing cone, because that's where your pressures are the greatest, you know? Yep. And if you have less thickness down at the end where your pressures are lower, it's not as big a concern. So that's one of the things about minimum minimum wall thickness is I want to know where it is, too. So if someone tells me the the barrels, the minimum wall thickness is 21 thousandths, so 0.021, I think that's what that is. Yep. And they tell me that, you know, it's, you know, three inches from the muzzle, it's not that big a deal. Um, you know, it probably it doesn't sound like there's a lot of choke in the gun, but it's not that big a deal. But if it's further, you know, if they find a spot further back in the barrels, you know, say in the first 10 inches where there's a thickness that's that minimum, then that's a concern because your pressures are greater back there. And the other thing that tells me is that there was probably a, some kind of pit back there that someone kind of tried to work out or there was a problem there that someone tried to deal with because they shouldn't be that thin that far, that close to the, to the breach. So, um, but basically, you know, the number people will throw around is like a 21 thou or 20 thou. Yep. Um, but again, you have to know where it occurs. Uh, I like to see the barrels, you know, I like to see them 25,000. So 0.025, 
or thicker out, you know, as the minimum out in the last six inches. And the reason for that is uh, it's not like the, the barrels aren't going to blow up. What the reason is, is if the barrels get damaged, you can repair them. So if you were to dent them or something, there's, so when they, when you have a dent, um, what they do, they, they press the dent out and then they file it down and refinish it. And if you don't have a lot of metal there, they can't do it. Uh, right. So they can't properly repair a dent. So basically the barrels don't have as much life left in them. You know, this goes back to the condition of them, the original condition. So what your minimum wall thicknesses are telling you, um, a lot of times is the life the gun has led. Has the gun been reblacked a lot? Um, has the gun been polished out on the inside a lot? And for me, when I see those minimums, that's what, it's not so much to me, like, I don't say, oh, the gun's going to blow up. I think, oh, the gun's been worked on a lot. It's had a lot of, you know, just had a lot of stuff done to it. And, uh, is that something I want to get involved in? Right. Right. Yeah. That all, that all makes sense. You know, logically, I mean, the more steel you have there, it's almost like, it's kind of like insurance where if you've got a, if you've got a dent or something, I actually, one of the, the Sterling worth that I have actually, it it had a small dent in uh, one of the barrels and it was able to be kind of pulled out. You know, you can't see it when you look down the barrels, you can't see it from the inside. So it's good, but it's there. You can notice it, but there was enough steel there for, you know, kind of insurance policy. They were able to fix it. So that's good. And the other thing is, you that's a good point on the minimum wall thickness, you know, where is it? And just naturally, if you look at a, if you open up a side-by-side shotgun, it's unloaded, you look down near the breech, there's a lot more steel there. And if you look at the muzzle, the ends of the barrels, there's a lot less steel. So you're, you're definitely going to see that minimum wall thickness is going to get less and less as you get closer to the muzzle. And it lends itself to the point that you made. If you see that minimum wall thickness anywhere near the, near the breach or, you know, the further back closer to the action. I mean, that's kind of a red flag. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it should like the, it's usually the minimums are about six inches from the muzzle because what happens is the barrels, uh, they start to taper back in as you get towards the muzzles. Cause if there's choke, you sure, know, sure. so choke is a constriction and it's usually within the last four inches of the barrels, but it doesn't happen. It's not a wall that happens it's a slope so they start to slope in so uh typically the last four or five inches there's a lot of meat in the set of barrels it's that like six seven inches back from the muzzles that's usually the thinnest part and and barrel makers have to do that because if they that's how they balance a gun so that it feels lively in your hands if the barrels were like up like just the same thickness all the way down the barrels would be really, the gun would be really thick and cumbersome in your hand. Yeah. You know, yep. you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to shoot it, you know, and certain guns have thicker barrels and others, you know, like, I know like you'll see, you'll see some trap guns and stuff like bigger, heavier guns overall, uh, that'll have thicker barrels. Um, you know, lightweight game guns can get, you can get some pretty thin barrels in some of those guns. They can be made that way too. I've seen guns that were a hundred percent original and they had, you know, walls that were down to 21,000. And it's just because the gun was really lightweight and that's how they made it. So, yeah, that's kind of the art and the nuance of gun making, which I find very, very cool and interesting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. All right. So, so to finish up here, rule three, uh, rule three on, on the article is that fit is a huge factor and that uh, lends itself directly to the fact that a lot of the old guns are not made the same way that a lot of guns are today. So if you're 
switching with from something modern and you're looking at old stuff, you might run into some issues. Tell us about fit, Greg. So like uh, dress shirts and suits, not every gun fits every person. I'll say that. Um, and old guns tend to have uh, what's called a lot of drop in them. So the drop is the measurement. It's sort of a the distance between the rib of the gun and the top of the the butt of the stock. I know it's kind of a hard thing to to imagine as we're talking about it. Yeah. But it's basically a vertical measurement, and uh, what it has to do with is when you mount the gun, people nowadays will lock their cheeks down tight onto the comb of the stock, and if a gun has a lot of drop, what you'll be looking at is the top lever of the gun. You won't be looking down the barrels and. There's all sorts of, so old guns tend to have a lot of drop in them. There's all sorts of theories about why that's, that's the case. And I, I, no one's ever come up with a theory that's convinced me. I personally can shoot guns with a lot of drop in them. I can shoot them pretty well. And it's because I shoot with my head held up high. I don't bring my, so I don't bring my cheek down to the comb. Um, and I didn't grow up like, I never, no one ever taught me how to shoot. I didn't go to a, you know, a club and shoot sporting places. If you go shoot targets, like you, you're taught to lock your cheek down to the comb. And that was never the case with me. I hold my head up straight. And I suspect that old shooters used to do the same thing. Um, and that's the way the guns were built. But for most people nowadays, so uh, if you want to buy an old Parker or an old Fox, like an old Fox Sterling Worth, those guns had two and seven eighth inches of drop in them. Yep. And they typically had 14 and a quarter inch stocks. Uh, and uh, so that's just too much. For most shooters nowadays, that's too much drop for them to shoot well with. They want more like at the most two and a half inches of drop or two and a quarter inches of drop. And because of with less drop, then when you bring your cheek down to the comb, you'll be looking down the barrels. Of course, you know, you're not supposed to aim a shotgun. It's not about looking down the barrels so that you can aim and hit your target. It's more about how the gun, when you bring it up and mount it, um, where the barrels are positioning themselves automatically, sort of. That's what, you know, fits all about increasing your ability to shoot instinctively because you don't shoot shotguns like a rifle. You don't aim them. You just kind of pull them up and shoot them. So that's what, you know, a gun that fits well enhances that ability. A gun that fits poorly doesn't allow you to do that. The other thing that, that the other big concern is um, length of pull which is the measurement from the front trigger to the middle of the stock. And a lot of old guns uh, have a 14 and a quarter inch length of pull. So when you mount the gun, for a lot of guys, their hands, uh, they're sort of, they, they look crowded on the gun. They're, especially their, um, if they're right-handed, their right hand is too far back and too close to their face. The gun isn't as far forward as it should be, as it should be. Um, and that's one of those things that's it's all about um, how instinctive the gun feels and how well you can shoot it. So basically, the old guns don't shoot, don't fit most people today as well as uh, the new guns do, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, they're definitely different. You know, as somebody that pretty much shot modern guns for most of my life and recently started picking up a few older guns that that fit can be adjusted to and can be adapted to, to a certain extent, but it will, it will feel different for somebody that's never, never picked up a gun with a lot of drop or a really short length of pull. So, 
we'll leave it at that. Greg, yeah. we, we had uh, we had more stuff on the agenda, but I think we've we've kind of hit our time limit here, and I think we can uh, we can make that other stuff that we wanted to talk about another episode of the podcast. We'd love to have you back. So we'll kind of tease people and say that we've we've talked quite a bit about American guns, and I think the next time we bring Greg back, we're gonna we're gonna sail across the seas and and talk a little bit about. European guns, whether that's English, Spanish, Belgian, German, kind of all all that stuff, we'll we'll take a tour overseas and talk a little bit about those guns and sort of what that marketplace looks like. So until then, Greg, apart from dogsanddoubles.com, is that the best place for people to reach you if they've got questions? Yeah, there, and I'm on Instagram too at dogsanddoubles. Those are the two places where you'll find me. Um, and if you've got questions about anything, feel free to reach out to me. And I'll, I'm on Facebook, you know, facebook.com slash dogs and doubles. Uh, so just, you know, if you come across something and you want me to take a look at it, feel free to drop me a, a note. If you have something, you want to know what it's worth or how to sell it, you know, I, I've done a ton, ton of stuff in auctions and stuff like that. And I know the best way to sell stuff. And I know a lot of people looking for stuff. Yeah, very cool. I've uh, I've taken you up on that. I've shot some listings over to you to get your opinion, and I always appreciate it. So thank you for that, and uh, thanks for making that available to the listeners. Greg, I always enjoy talking to you. Thank you so much for your time this evening, and we'll look forward to having you back on the podcast in the near future. Great. Thanks a lot, Nick. I'm looking forward to it. have got a lot more to talk about. All right. Take care, Greg. Have a good one. Yeah, have a good one. You've been listening to the Project Upland Podcast. As your host, Nick Larson, I'd like to thank you all for listening, tuning in each and every week. And I'd like to thank our partners on the Project Upland Podcast, bringing you each and every episode of the show. We thank Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Onyx Maps, Gumleaf USA, and Dogtra Callers. You could be next week's winner of the Project Upland Podcast giveaway. All you got to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the show, share the podcast post, or send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. Appreciate all my listeners. I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. Head over to projectupland.com for more great stuff, blogs, articles, gun reviews, book reviews, films, magazine link. It's all there. Head over to projectupland.com. That's it for this episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you on the next show. yourself podcast if you enjoyed this show then you might want to check out my show as well we highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode we cover all topics related to hunting dogs check out gun dog yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes